The Word became flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone has come coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Thanks, Jasmine. Do keep that open. From the beginning of time until now, this is the only thing that has ever really happened. So wrote Dorothy Sayers, the author. Got a blue plaque on Brewer Street just across the way. Speaking of the Christmas story, the only thing that has ever really happened. It's such a massive thing. Everything else is dwarfed. Everything else is insignificant in comparison. She went on, we may call it revelation or we may call it rubbish, but if we call it dull, then what in heaven's name is worthy to be called exciting? Yet I wonder whether for some of us the Christmas story is just a little bit dull for us. Christmas, I know for some of you, you're full of excitement at the prospect of Christmas. Feast, family, Christmas lights, candle lights. What's not to like, you think? For others of us, Christmas maybe is a very hard time for you. Or, or maybe Christmas just feels a rather empty time for all the, the tinsel and so on. But for all of us, Christmas should be a time of breathtaking wonder. Because many in our world look for a, a, to create a sense of wonder by buying the perfect Christmas presents, by getting some new baubles or decorations for the Christmas tree, finding a new recipe for our Christmas meal. But the wonder of Christmas is not found in those things. The wonder of Christmas is not found in trying to rec recreate some childhood memory of the magic of Christmas. We have to go much further back than childhood. We have to go back to the first Christmas. That's where the wonder of Christmas is to be found. My longing for myself, longing for all of us, is that we are helped to marvel afresh this Christmas at what happened then. I want each of us to approach Christmas Day with a proper and deeper sense of wonder. So we're going to look at John 
chapter 1, over these coming weeks, actually. John's account of Christmas, in one sense, is, is the most sort of stripped bare. There's no um, shepherds or wise men. There's no star or stable. No Joseph or Mary, even. And yet another way, it's the most magnificent description of what happened. The most mind-blowing account of Christmas. And our minds should be blown. Our hearts should be stirred. So I'm going to pray that might indeed be true for us. Let me pray. Father, this reading we've had is, a, is for many of us a very familiar reading. And yet we pray, please, you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law. Please stir in us a proper, deeper sense of wonder at what happened at Christmas. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Well, as I said, it, they may, for some of us, be uh, familiar verses we're looking at, but I want us simply to sort of, I want to walk us through, help us marvel at them. I've got three headings to plot our course. They're not wonderful headings. I want you to take away not the headings, really, but what John writes here. The headings are just a sort of steer our way through. We're going to have the word, the light, and the gift. So first, the word. We often begin a story, once upon a time. But the story John is wanting to tell begins before there was time. Before there was anything, before creation, before any Big Bang or anything else. In the beginning... He writes, and those three words really should start to stir a sense of wonder in us. An echo, of course, of the first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning, God, the Bible begins, now John writes, in the beginning was the word, already existing, eternally existing, the word was an idea that would have had some resonance in the first century. In the Gentile world, the Greek world, it was often used, the phrase, the word, to speak of what gives order or meaning to our universe. The reasons things are as they are, if you like. But uh, it was very much a, a biblical idea too. In Genesis 1, of course, God spoke by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, we're told. His word was his instrument of creation. Also in the Old Testament, it was his agent of revelation. We often read how the word of the Lord came to Isaiah or Jeremiah or whoever. It's also his agent of salvation. One of the Psalms says this, God sent forth his word and saved them from the grave. God's word had lots of resonance. It really speaks of God's self-expression. For us, there's often a mismatch between the people we are and the things we say. But that is never true of, of God. God is his word. John has all those ideas, I think, in mind. But he's also say, saying something new. So here again, how John introduces the word to us. Verse 1, in the beginning was 
the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Notice how those, those two verses mirror each other. And at the center is the statement, and the Word was God. That's who we're talking about. God. Have you ever tried talking to a Jehovah's Witness on your doorstep? You'll perhaps know. They make much of the fact that there is no the before the word God. And therefore it could be translated a God. The word was a God. Divine in some way. Although there was a perfectly good other word for divine. But John is, is choosing his words very, very carefully. Uh, if he'd say the word was the God, that would imply the word and God were one and the same. But that's not quite what John's saying. He's, he's saying the word is not all there is of God, but all that God is, the word was. That's his point. There is unity, and yet there is distinction too, for the word was with God. He's expressing something, of course, we don't find easy to get our heads around. We can't get our heads around. Wonderfully, God is much bigger than our tiny minds. He's pointing to the truth of the Trinity. God is absolutely one. And yet, wonderfully, he is love, the Bible says, eternally, essentially, relational. The word was God and the word was with God. God and that word with is is the word often just translated towards or to it implies face to to face it speaks of being with another person it implies relationship intimacy in Genesis 1 God spoke and the heavens and earth were created and now John tells us that word was a person Son of God, through whom, verse 3, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. It's an amazing beginning to the account. Luke, in his account of Christmas, sets the stage for the birth of Jesus by telling us that Caesar Augustus was the emperor and some chap called Quirinius was the governor of Syria and so on. John, rather, just tells us that every bit of this stage was made through him and for him. His fingerprints are over it all because he is the word. And if we might be tempted to think that all these things that happened in Palestine 2,000 years ago are all a bit remote from us, well, we should be reminded that he is the one who made me. He's the one who made my world today too absolutely relevant. Next time we're going to learn next Sunday about how the word became flesh, how the word will be given a name, Jesus, a name he has still. But I find it striking that John doesn't start with the baby in the manger and just tell us that baby is so much more than that. Lo, within the, the manger lies he who built the starry skies. No, rather, John starts with the massive truth. Here is the word the one who was with God in the beginning, who, who made all that there is. And as another carol puts it, he's, he's saying, our God 
contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. This is where he tells the story. That should stir our wonder. Actually, also, if he is the word, should make us listen. If we're prone to switch off to this all very familiar truth. He's the word, and we should listen. Second, he's the light. That's the dominant theme in verses 4 to 9. Look at verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He's the true light, as opposed to many false or misleading lights there might be. He's the light for everyone, John says. The light of all mankind, as it says in verse 4. No sense that John might say, oh, there are other lights available if you want to choose one of them. No, he's saying this light is the one true light for everybody. And what do lights do? Well, of course, lights enable us to see. They reveal. And Jesus reveals himself. The fact that he's called the light makes it very clear. God is not a God who is somehow hiding in the shadows, playing hide and seek with us, not really wanting to be found. He's the light. He longs to be seen, to be known. He reveals God, and actually he reveals ourselves. He shows us what we are really like. Lights help us see. They also bring life. Verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. This light is life-giving, John says. Not just biological life, physical life, although it includes that, certainly, the sense is spiritual life too. Life in allness, its fullness, eternal life is found in him. He, this light brings sight, it brings life, and it brings hope. Again and again in John's gospel, light gets contrasted with darkness. And we all know there is a lot of darkness in our world. Light wonderfully banishes darkness. Look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, of course not. Darkness, darkness never smothers light. The opposite happens. Light banishes darkness. That's lovely the way in verse 5, John suddenly uses the present tense. It's all been in the past up to this point and afterwards. He's saying the coming of this light was the beginning of a, a wonderful, inevitable victory. Darkness will never overcome the light. Light will always win. And so light brings hope. That's a hope to hold on to today. Sometimes perhaps we, we feel that the light shines in a rather flickering, feeble, faint way in our world. The darkness seems very, very dark. But light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, nor will it. This light brings sight and life and hope. And then sort of lobbed in the middle of this section, we get that little paragraph, verses 6 to 8, about John. It's talking about John the Baptist. And it seems a bit of a sort of interruption almost, a bit of an interlude. But in part, 
John is now anchoring the story in history. He begins, in the beginning, but now, verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. We're, we're now in history. But it's striking what we're told about this guy. John, we're not told what the other gospel writers tell us, nothing about how he eat like locusts and, and wild honey, nothing about how he came to baptize people. That's not mentioned at all. Rather, verse 7, we're told he came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. That's a rather odd thing for John to have come to do because we might think lights, does a light really need a witness? You don't usually need someone to point out a light. We, we see light for itself. Light bears witness to itself. And this light that's come is not some piddling little light. It's the light, the true light that gives light to everyone. Why does that light need a witness to point others to it? Well, notice that the point of John's witness at the end of verse 7. It's so that through him all might believe. And that's a very important theme in John's gospel, faith. John is saying, faith comes through witness. John is the first of many witnesses. We'll see others, the woman at the well, the man born blind, John the gospel writer himself. Witness is what we are called to do now. He is the light for everyone. And the world needs witnesses to that light if they are going to believe. What a job we've got. People are in darkness we can point people to the light. The final verses tell us something of the reception we might get, the mixed reception, though. Third heading is the gift. And it's an amazingly precious gift that Jesus brings, as we'll see. And part of its preciousness, actually, comes from the pain that there was in the offering of it. Verses 10 and 11, I think, are some of the most shocking verses in the Bible. Verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Some of you will be traveling, no doubt, over Christmas to... Uh, Join members of your family, maybe going to your, your parents, going home. I hope it doesn't happen to you. Sadly, it does happen sometimes in our world. But imagine this happening to you. You turn up to see your family and you're greeted with, who are you? Imagine your parents seeing your, your suitcase in hand and them saying, I'm sorry, you're not staying here. Go away. You're not welcome. A terrible, terrible thing. And yet here we're talking about the one through whom everything was made, the one who sustains our life, everything we enjoy in this world, the one who is the word, the one who is the light. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. I don't know about you, I hate rejection. 
hate rejection. And we're probably familiar with the idea that Jesus was rejected, that he faced hostility. But can you imagine how painful it must have felt for Jesus to come to his own and his own not to receive him, not to recognize him, not to receive him. And yet he comes offering the most wonderful, amazing gift of all. Verse 12, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I don't quite like the way rights has become the way everyone speaks these days. Everyone wants to talk about their rights. But here is a right that is offered to everyone, that none of us deserve, a right that is beyond anything we might have ever imagined. Not just to be servants of God. That would be a pretty amazing right to have, to live in God's world and be called to be his servant. But now this is so much more. He gives the right to become children of God. To know God's love and care and protection. To know God as Father. Can you think of a more wonderful or precious gift you could ever be given than that? You want to know, capture something of the wonder of Christmas. Forget what's under the tree, but ponder this gift. And it's perhaps, again, familiar to us, far too familiar. But John says in one of his letters, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are, he says. Is that not an amazing gift? The right to become children of God. And it's all of grace, he says. None of us deserve it. We don't have some inherent right to it because we born in a Christian home because we're of a particular race. No, verse 13, children born not of natural descent nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. None of us deserve this. There's nothing we can do to earn it. We don't, it's not our choice simply or something we can choose for someone else, for our children maybe. No, this is an act of God. His sovereign grace and yet at the same time, it's offered to everyone. Verse 12, he came, uh, verse 12, to, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's, it's all of God, and yet there is a response which we are responsible to make. How do we receive this gift? Well, it's as we receive him, as we receive Jesus welcoming him into our lives, believing in his name, trusting in him for ourselves. It's both all of God, and yet John frequently insists also it's our responsibility to recognize him as the word, as the light, and to receive him into our lives. It's the whole of John's gospel is really wanting to lead us to the point where we will kneel with the disciple Thomas before Jesus and say, my Lord and my God, to receive 
him, recognize him. Have you done that? If you have, then you have the most precious gift you could ever have, a gift that no one can take away, a gift we'll enjoy for all eternity, the right to become children of God. Let me pray. Father, there is so much that should stir us to wonder about Christmas. The one who came, the one who was made flesh. We pray you'd help us to see that afresh and anew this Christmas time. But also the wonder of the gift he comes to bring. And pray that that present would stir our hearts to fresh joy and firmer trust and faith. For his name's sake, amen.